You're listening to TIP. In today's episode, I invited the Investing Mastermind Group. In the first part, we discussed Redalio's holy grail of investing and whether and how retail investors could invest using the same framework. In the second part, we discussed whether the rise of passive investing is good or bad for active investors and if there's a silver lining to Robin Hood and the new generation of brokers that might be commission-free but certainly aren't free. We talk about that and much, much more. So without further delay, here's the Investing Mastermind discussion for Q3 2021. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Brodersen, and today I'm accompanied by our investing mastermind group here for Q3 2021. So Toby, Jake, Wes, thank you for taking the time to provide value for audience uh, here today. Yeah, can't wait. So Jens, the first topic here of today, that is to talk about the holy grail of investing. So Redalio is one of the billionaires that we have studied most here on We Study Billionaires. And one thing that has profound impact on how I think about investing was Redalio's concept of what he refers to as the holy grail of investing. So in his words, it's 15 to 20 good uncorrelated return streams that will dramatically reduce your risk without reducing your expected returns. And one thing that Dalio highlights is that individual assets within asset class can, well, usually about 60% correlated with each other. So even if you're diversified, but it's still in that asset class, perhaps you're not. So this type of thinking is very different than how many people often think about investing. So generally, many investors have the home as the primary asset. And then with any excess capital, they consider typically two different investment approaches. I I know I'm really generalizing here, but you have one who are more active. Very often, that would be in the stock market where that person would then pick individual stocks, typically in their home country. And then you have a, a more passive investor who would buy an index fund. But that's also very much in their own country and, and typically a market-weighted index fund. So that's sort of like the, um, the premise for the first question here. So if I can throw it out there, perhaps starting with you, Toby, do you apply the holy grade of investing mindset with 15 to 20 good uncorrelated assets? And you're already smirking here. And you can also say this premise that Redalio puts up, is, it's not really valid. The premise, I think, is right. That's the general idea that you want as many different uncorrelated return streams as you possibly can so that your savings generally grow over time, whatever kind of environment you confront. If it's a 70s stagflationary, gold running, equities getting smashed to pieces, bonds getting smashed to pieces, then you want to have something in that portfolio that's keeping your purchasing power at least up with. And then got other scenarios where you've got like a late 1990s bull market or the bull market that we've just seen in equities. All of those things are unpredictable. And so it's good to have those return streams. That said, I don't do that because I'm an equity guy and I've only run equities and I just, I'm just i only going to be exposed to equities because I, I eat my own dog food. So I, I'm only invested in the things that I do. So I think it is a very good idea. I think it's probably a better idea. It's probably more important as you get older and further into your investment or into your saving career. But I think that early on, it's all right to have a little bit more exposure to the things you think are going to work a little bit better and to concentrate, figure all that sort of stuff out. Probably, Wes is your man for uh, uncorrelated return streams. I might speak to that because I used to teach portfolio theory back in the day. And I didn't even know what I was telling these poor students, but like, like going back to basic portfolio theory, the whole concept like Harry Markowitz and then leading to CAPM, all that follows is that, yeah, you just pull a bunch of uncorrelated stuff together. And even though they may all individually like go all over the place, when you pull them all together, all the randomness goes away and you just make free money. And if you can use leverage, it works even better. But the, there's two key assumptions that everyone learns. One is it requires leverage. And then the second one is that when the world blows up, the correlation structure stays the same. But as we've already learned, and people always relearn, is leverage is not stable because you don't have access to it anymore. And also when you know, SHIT hits the fan is a lot of things that weren't uncorrelated become correlated. 
So I'm just now that there, there's really two asset classes. And, you know, Chris Cole, who's uh, Toby's buddy, he always he's very good at explaining this. It's either your short ball, like you're winning when things are stable or it's long ball. Like it's losing when things are stable, but when the world blows up, you know, it tend to goes up. So, so I'm a big fan of diversification across two asset classes, short volatility asset class, which things that work when the world's doing okay. And then long volatility asset class, which is things that usually don't work, but work pretty well when, you know, the world's on fire. I'm coming from live this week from Capital Camp. So I've learned that the only real asset classes are NFTs, blockchain, <laughs> DeFi. That's a very popular topic at the moment. And I think that the other part of... Uh, I totally agree, by the way, with what both Toby and Wes said. But I think another interesting way to kind of reframe the question is, do you really know what you're buying or not? And you know, if you're kind of a know-nothing investor and you don't plan on wanting to figure out what you're truly owning, then I think trying to find diversified streams as much as you can makes sense. However, if you are if you want to sort of understand what you own, the business is, or whatever product it is, I think that then diversification often ends up becoming diversification. And it's a, just a different mindset and a different way to... like. There's lots of ways to do this game smart. It's just you have to sort of match up your personality and what you want to work on with, with the particular portfolio and not trick yourself into thinking you're doing one thing and really you're you know playing a different game. I think you bring up a good point, Jake, because like I mentioned before, most people have the vast, vast majority of the wealth in their home. And that's something they understand that it makes sense. And it's a different standpoint than, say, Redalio, where I don't know how many homes he has, but you know, it, it's probably a very small proportion of his net worth that's tied into his homes. So I can definitely agree with that. But if I can throw it over back to you, uh, Tobin, you said you know, your, your equities only. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Perhaps they have their home, but uh, in, in pure equities. I think even Warren Buffett said like he would put like 90% in the S&P and then 10% in treasuries. But are you at all worried that we're going to have a, say, 1929 and it took 25 years to recoup that loss just because your analysis was wrong? Like 25 years is, is a huge price to pay for being wrong in opportunity cost. Is that something that you considered? There's a huge risk that equities, particularly US equities, the most overvalued asset class in the world. And that the consequence of that overvaluation is a very extended period of. I think when I look at the S&P 500, if I use that, that Hussman method, I know that that's a, you're not allowed to say his name, but I like his method for, for valuing the S&P 500. He says, let's assume that over a decade, we go back to the long run average valuation and still get the underlying growth, which is about 6% a year, and you get dividends on top of that. Where you end up in six years, in ten years, if you follow that, if you follow that method, and at the moment, I, the last time I looked, it was predicting forward returns of about 0.8 percent, and that includes 1.3 percent of dividends. So that's a negative 0.5 percent on the index, compounded annually for the next decade. Now, it's been predicting very low returns for a while, and none of those have eventuated. So. You can do what everybody else does and sort of discard those, or you can look at the reasons why that has happened. And that's largely that the multiples have expanded faster than earnings have grown for a very long period of time, an unusually long period of time. And often when you get this overvaluation, the consequences are lower returns and more volatility. So yeah, I think that's a very real risk. And I think it's probably a pretty good bet that at some point, that's exactly what's going to happen. So throw it over to you there, Wes. Assuming that you wanted to diversify away from a market cap weighted, say, called global fund, you know, let's just, just not say that it's just our, our home country, so we're already global. Which investing yeah. strategies would you follow or which assets would you add to your portfolio if you bought into this whole grade of investing uh, type of thinking? Going back to like the what's short volatility, what's long volatility, you know, on that short volatility book is, is what are things that do well during normal times, well, that's your house, that's your human capital, that's your stocks, that's your pretty much everything most people own, right? So within that bucket, you know, I like to own cheap stuff and I like to own right now in particular, just because I've been in the weeds of it, like value, in my opinion, is evergreen, right? Buy with the margin of safety. So I would not want to buy passive indices right now, because if you look at whether it's a US you know, index, SPY, you know, it's probably got like an operating income yield of 
5%, which is crazy. And then international markets, maybe it's 6%. And EM, maybe it's 7 Like All of those are extremely expensive if you just buy the market cap indices, which is fine. But if you go into like cheap stock world, you know, in the U.S. market, you could probably get stocks that are still, you know, 10 to 12 percent EBIT yields or operating income yields. But if you go into dev markets or EM markets, you could get like 15 to 20. So there's two times as much kind of bang for your buck opportunities in, in the value world out there in international markets. So I just think there's a lot more opportunity. If I'm going to own short volatility i.e. own things that blow up when the world blows up. At least I want to own things with a margin of safety that you know, I feel have like higher expected returns. So that, that's what I do. Buy cheap stuff in the States and globally. And then buy, we, you know, we like momentum stocks as well. Because I, you know, I got to hedge against the fact that you know, maybe value stocks do get burnt to the ground. So I, you know, I just buy cheap stuff and buy winners across the globe for the short volatility book. Really stocks are like a, a smoking, smoldering rubble at the moment that you think they can burn down further from there. I mean, I don't think so, but as you know, like like I've earned I've learned enough in lifetime to not believe in only one religion because sometimes a religion is just wrong. And so I just diversify against the religions. Like obviously I believe in margin of safety. I believe in fundamentals. I believe in free cash flow. I believe cash is king. But I also understand that like Jake's at a conference where they're talking about NFTs that have nothing to do with like cash flow and dividends and fundamentals and net present value. So I don't know, maybe we're in a world where, and I get, I think this is crazy, but maybe we're just in a world where people don't care about valuation. They care about flipping it like Ponzi schemes, basically flip something that's shiny now, that's going to be even shinier in the future to someone else who wants to buy it at a higher price. Also a valid investment approach. And so I'm with you, Toby. That's why I like value, but there's a risk that maybe fundamentals just won't matter for a lot longer than anyone can expect. You know, I need to hedge against that, basically. Jake, let me throw it to you. I, I always know what, what Toby's going to say, because he's, uh, he's an equities only guy, right? So <laughs> he's a broken record. He's a broken record. <laughs> Man with a hammer. Right. So, Jake, other strategies or do you have any specific type of asset classes that you would add to your portfolio? I'm kind of drawn more towards trying to keep things as simple as possible. So, like, I structure things for my clients actually where it's basically like within, if you're going to need any money within the next five years, we're not going to invest that part of the, the portfolio. And anything after that tends to be equities. I would be open to bonds if I found things that made sense, but it's just kind of in my lifetime. Well, early in my life, I think there were probably bonds, but I wasn't doing a lot of training as a toddler. But for most of my professional life, bonds have seemed to be kind of high priced to me, and especially relative to what equities would offer over a long-term holding period. So, so I tend to end up with kind of a barbell strategy where there's, there's a lot of cash and liquidity for any needs that a client would have in the next five years from that portfolio. And then everything else is eligible for a long-term hold equity type of investment. And that's just the way that makes sense to me and is simple. So if you have more than five years, let's say, until you'd ever need to draw on that portfolio, that like all of it would be theoretically available for, for equity deployment. Now, we can argue the timing or, or not with that cash and the pitfalls and that of that. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I tend to have a fair amount of cash and not a lot of other or esoteric assets. You know, it's, it's interesting that you, you would talk about that, Jake. So I had Toby on the show here not, uh, not too long ago, and we talked about having a cash position. We talked about inflation and how we, how we might think differently about inflation. I, I don't know. I don't want to put words in, in Toby's mouth uh, whenever I'm saying this, but I sure think differently about the opportunity cost than whenever I started. Well, you know, I was, I was taught, you know, the church of Buffett and Munger, I'm supposed to have a ton of cash around and then I, I would then invest whenever that brilliant opportunity came along. Not a lot of brilliant opportunities really came along. And so I kind of also felt I paid a high opportunity cost with everything we see now, not just in the macro landscape, but just in, just in general with the market right now. You already said that you have a fair amount of, of cash. Like, is that like 10%, 30%? Like, and how do you think about inflation when it comes to that? You know, I, I kind of view it this as a poker game in a lot of ways where 
the amount of cash I'm holding is like the chips in my stack. And then there's an ante that is, you know, the blindness comes around to me and I have to pay. And that's sort of the inflation. And I've been very, very thankful that the blinds have been low for a long time of this poker game. It hasn't been that painful. Granted, the opportunity cost has been big. But even then, I mean, you're, it's not like value rip and I didn't. It's not like most of the S&P 500 didn't really do anything. It was only a handful of things that have really done it. And I was not in a place to appreciate those businesses. And so I didn't really deserve to get the gains from those. So there's always going to be things I don't understand. Those do well, then like that shouldn't really bother me. So I've just been very, very thankful that the ante of this game has been, or the blinds have been low. Wes, I remember we, we talked about this you know, some time ago in terms of ETFs and generally you want to be, to be fully invested. How about you like, yeah. in your private portfolio? Are you sitting like, on, a, on a pile of, of cash? To Jake's point, like, I, cash is fine. In my opinion, it's a costly insurance vehicle and there's potentially better alternatives out there that achieve the same end state, really. Because what cash is doing for you is it's creating optionality to be money good when the world's on fire. But the cost is you got to sit in the bank account and you have the opportunity cost of capital and inflation, all this other stuff. And so the ideal situation is how would I get access to insurance cheaper? And I'm not saying that there's only one way to do it, but I'm just a huge fan of using like, you know, obviously trend following techniques where, you know, maybe you only put down insurance if, if we're in a bad trend. There's a lot of times you can buy like different like long volatility products in option world where you can find people that, yeah, they're going to have some cost to carry, but it's not that high. But when the world blows up, you actually get, you get paid. And so now, you know, it's, it's like buying insurance, but the insurance premium is not that high. So I'm just a huge fan of trend following in general, like managed futures, but just, you know, specifically trend following managed futures, just straight up long volatility, like owning puts, but smartly, I could see working. And cash is also fine too. So I would say you probably want to do like a, a mix of all those different things as a way to kind of counterbalance your, you know, your all-in equity book. So that's what I do personally. I don't have cash sitting around. I got managed futures. I got, I'm not going to mention it, but I, I own this, this fund that does long volatility and I do trend following. But for the most part, I'm long and strong, you know, our funds on the equity side, like, like Toby does. So I don't, I don't hold cash in big quantities. I think the other part that's important for me is that most of this game for me is trying to control my own psychology. And I really do feel like it's sort of me against myself often. And the cash is a way to really help me to stay patient. And it is, there's a comfort to it that I think makes me a better investor. And so even if it is not, it's kind of suboptimal, the simplicity of it. I believe in those things too, Wes. Like, I mean, I think tail risk funds, things like that, like they make sense to me. But oftentimes I, I'm trying to keep things simple so that my mind can rest at ease and I don't have to do as many. And then I can really focus on like trying to really understand the businesses. Yeah, that's, I mean, you're doing it the right way. 99% mental game, 1% what you actually do. So you're controlling the 99%. I think you're going the right, right method. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. 
Maka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Maka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Let's talk about trend following. You just mentioned it there, Wes. So to me, I, I've never invested in anything that was, that was trend following, but you know, I, I read up a bit on it here lately, and it's, it seems to me to, to some extent to fit the bill of the holy grail of investing. I don't have 15 or 20 different revenue streams. Like it, would be, it would be great if that was the case, but that's, that's not the case for me. And I was thinking whether or not trend following would really fall into that bucket, because over a long time period, it's not correlated with the, with the stock market. It follows a lot of different and uncorrelated markets if it's set up right, and yet you can achieve stock market-like returns, and you can invest in smaller funds. You don't need to put in a, down a down payment as you would for your house. And one thing that might make this appealing is that perhaps it doesn't matter if we are in the biggest bubble in history. Some people think we are, other people would argue that we're not. But in case we are wrong, the, the strategy appeals to me in the sense that you can make money in the direction the market is, is going. Obviously, you would then be very much long right now because of what's happening to more or less all markets right now. So if the stock market would crash tomorrow, you would still see like a significant drop in your trend following portfolio. But you could yeah. then make money on the way down whenever that trend has shifted. So my question is whether or not you considered investing in, in trend following. I like Chris Cole's version of the world where everything's long vol and short vol. As I point out to Cole, when you, when you long vol, you still got to figure out which one of the long vol assets you want to be in. It's not quite as simple as that, but he knows that too. He's written some good papers on that. But I, I like the way he thinks about the world. The idea of trend following is just that, well, the simplest version when you apply it in an equity world is that when you get that precipitous drop, which you do, which is like the, the tail end of most bears, when you get that big, gigantic sell-off that kind of ends it, that you're like magically plucked out and you're hedged through that period. And you can, you can find lots of examples that work really, really well. You can run S&P 500 back and use like the simplest versions, the 200-day or the 10-month, which is the one that everybody recommends. And you can see how well that's done. Apply that same methodology to Japan. The beauty of it was that it kept you invested the whole way up the Japanese bubble as it ran up, up to 1990. And then it just plucked you out at the top. And as Japan was absolutely devastated, you survived and, you, and you've kind of done much, much better than anybody else in Japan by following these things. The problem I have found with them is just the, the implementation of them is very difficult. And, and it's not a total solution in the sense that you do have these trend following hasn't been a great strategy over the last, Wes would know better than I would, but it has been a great strategy over the last sort of short period of time in the market because we've been whipsawed quite a few times as the market goes down, you put the hedge on, market goes back up, you hedge, take it off. It's just that's that's every single trend following strategy that I have a look at Corey Hofstein's dashboard where he tracks these things. Any of these risk managed strategies like buying some vol, trend following, being a value guy, holding cash, everything has underperformed for the last sort of 10 years because the market's been very, very strong and the the harder the chewer, the longer and harder you've been through this whole period, the, uh, the more likely you've outperformed. 
and, and any kind of risk management ha- has hurt you. And so it's always at this point where people are like, well, I've been doing this for 10 years and now I'm underperforming. I'm going to give it up and I'm just going to be long and strong. I might even get levered long. And I think that I kind of get the feeling that, you know, and I'm going to buy some other stuff. I'm going to buy NFTs and I'm going to flip those and Bitcoin. And I don't like assets where the, the basis of the valuation is what the next guy pays for it. I like assets where the basis of the valuation is something that I can individually just go and have a look at the underlying business. And then if the mark gets changed tomorrow by 50%, but the underlying business is the same, then even though on paper, 50% poorer, I know that the underlying business is still great and that might be a good signal for me to buy some more. I approach it like that rather than... And I'm, I'm at the point where I just want to simplify my life. I don't, want, I don't want vol and I don't want trend following. I don't want other things in there. I'm just trying to get to a... Because there, I'm okay with a 50% drawdown in the market. I'm happy with my investable assets going down by 50% because I get no, I'm not using them for at least 25 years and probably longer than that. That brings up a really good point, Toby. I think you know, a lot of these things are, like Wes said, they're, they're kind of insurance products, right? And one of the things that you're sort of insuring against is quotational risk, like having the prices move on you and then you not being able to kind of handle it psychologically, maybe making an unforced error. Well, if you know what you own, and maybe you have a lot of cash that you feel good about deploying at that time, which sort of softens the blow of watching your other holdings going down, right? Like you can get excited about the new things that you're buying for cheaper, and you can stomach the volatility and the quotational, like you can self insure that quotational risk. Both directions to up as well as down. Yeah, right. So I think that's how I view it is like I'm, I'm trying to self insure that risk rather than look for someone else to insure it for me. Whenever people are hearing trend following, perhaps they're yeah. thinking, uh, which five stocks have spiked here recently? They should run out and buy that. Or like, I just want to, like, to debunk any kind of myth. It's like a lot of things. Like, oh, I'm a value investor. What's that mean? Like, do you own Amazon? You could be a value investor. Like, so it's really important to define what, what you mean, which is basically your question. So there's really, there's a million flavors of trend following. And I'll talk about two that are kind of the most important. The first form of trend falling is just long-term trend falling for risk management, get out of the way of the car wreck trend falling. And that's where the basic idea is, and this is, we've studied this on every asset class that you could possibly get data on, and it works everywhere in some sense, where what, what you're going to do is you look at a risk asset class. If it's in a long-term trend, own it. If it's in a long-term downtrend, get out of the way. That's simple. Why do you do that? Well, almost all left tail events of 50% type drawdowns are going to occur, obviously, in situations where this asset class is in a poor long-term downtrend. And so you can apply that on every single market over every single data set across time. We've done it. We've got all kinds of posts about it. But we have a really important post called trend falling, the epitome of no pain, no gain. Because to Toby's point, if you think value investing is hard or momentum investing is hard, how are you going to feel when you're running like a trend followed equity strategy and you've underperformed for 20 years? Not that great, right? And a lot of times you're in cash while your uncle's like, you know, he's doing high fives on how the S&P is up like five times, right? You're going to feel like an idiot. And trend falling is, is just, it is the most painful trade possibly that I've ever found on the planet Earth. But it also is the trade that I have the most confidence in for long-term survival. Follow trends is a good way to survive because by definition, if something's working, you're in it. And if not, you're gotten out of the way. So it's really hard to lose your ass basically in just general trend falling. That's one form of trend falling. It's very simple. You could apply it on your equity book or whatever, easy to implement. The other form of trend falling would be things that are are supposed to deliver what they call crisis alpha. So where the prior form of trend falling, which is just long-term, super simple trend falling, is is for risk management purposes. It's not going to prevent you from losing money. It's just the idea is it may prevent you from losing over half your money and maybe only lose 20 or 30%, but it's just risk management. Crisis alpha trend falling is much more high frequency, usually runs long, short, and goes across like commodity complex, bond complex, and everything else under the sun. 
those systems are designed to, in general, on average, you don't do anything. You just get chopped up to death in frictional costs and you may make a little money, you may lose a little bit of money, but they're designed to actually make money in the stock market, i.e. why they call it crisis alpha. And, and that genre of trend following systems, which is genetically called like managed futures, is you may be daily rebalancing or weekly rebalancing. You're going to use much shorter uh, time window trends, like maybe do like a 100 day look back as opposed to like 250 or 300 day. And, and again, it's just those are designed not to make you money, but just straight up insurance, right? And they work. Like you know, we run them, like they go up when the market totally blows up. But the, the problem with those, of course, is you get destroyed in frictional costs. They're super hard to understand. If you don't know what you're doing, like to Jake's point, you probably shouldn't be invested in it. So, so I'm a huge believer in, in managed futures for crisis alpha as well. But I would also am a huge believer in behavior, you know, drives everything. If you don't understand what you're getting into, if you don't know why and how it works, you should just put money in cash or bonds and do your diversification that method. Those are the two types of trend. Long-term trend falling for risk management, keep it simple. And then, you know, high frequency, more complex, trade a lot trend following that's usually deployed across tons of assets in a long, short context. Also cool, but not for everybody. Could you provide some numbers if, if you've done some research on it, like uh, how different portfolios have done with, say, uh, trend following taking up 5 or 10% of a portfolio? And then also, like, perhaps a few thoughts on should you diversify within trend following if you do allocate, say, 10% of your portfolio? Into trend following. So in general, for like the risk management form of trend following, like let's say you want to own equities, but you don't want to get your face ripped off at some point. Anytime you deploy long-term trend following rules, they don't trigger that much, right? So de facto, you're basically a buy and hold in the asset class, but it's only in, in protection for like extreme events. So usually when you look at those time series, whether it's, you know, Japanese stocks, Australian stocks or whatever, it doesn't really matter you're going to typically achieve close to the same expected returns with half the drawdown. However, that's just backtesting. I always tell people, listen, you're buying insurance. So you probably shouldn't have an expectation that over a long-term cycle, you're going to get the same expected returns with half the drawdown. We say, hey, you're probably going to get a lot of the, the expected returns, maybe 80, 90% of it. And yeah, you probably will protect against you know, the big kahuna drawdown, but you're going to be eating massive behavioral pain because of like the relative performance thing, because there are no free lunches. So that'd be my expectation for like a long-term trend. It's basically buy and hold with an airbag, right? And you're going to probably get half the drawdown with you know, maybe 80, 90% of the upside. Now on real trend falling, like the more high frequency crisis alpha version where you're trading you know, whole commodity complex, gold, silver, palladium, blah, 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 like the more complicated kind of managed futures products. Those strategies, I would say, are not going to be able to contribute. I mean, they do in a backtest sense. But a lot of times that comes from like the, the historical benefit of you put the cash in a T-bill that used to make money. Now they don't make money anymore. What I always tell people is I would not expect a high frequency crisis alpha focused managed futures fund to make a lot of money. It's probably going to, if you get flat, that's awesome. But if it provides that insurance where it goes up 10, 20% when the world blows up, that's insanely valuable. And if you're not making anything, if you're basically getting insurance and you don't have to pay for it, that's awesome. It is, is the best way to kind of think about these things. Now, as far as allocation, what I always tell people is, okay, you got 80% of your book in stocks and you're going to do a 5% trend following allocation. Well, you know, if 80% of your book is in stocks and they go down 50% and you put 5% in managed futures and you expect it to really do anything, you're just insane. And, and so the weirdest thing, and I actually personally run my book like this, even though it's totally insane, is managed futures exposure should be a massive component of your book because you need to counterbalance the equity book, right? Because if you're 80% stocks and 20%, let's say you're aggressive managed futures player, you're realistically, you're still, you know, 80%, 90% of your risk is short ball and you have a little bit of protection. But if you really want to truly balance like the chaos, 
you really need to be more like 50, 60% managed futures program and then 50, 60% in equities, but no one does that. So in my opinion, a 5% allocation to trend following or managed futures is just a waste of time. You might as well just put it in cash and you know feel warm and fuzzy. Anyone can understand cash. Like it's, I would say it's either a go big or go home trade. Either believe it and you do it or just hold money in cash and move on. But that's my personal opinion. There's a lot of implementation. I think of it like crisis offer and uh, I think crisis offer and the sort of, I think that the trend following, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but the, the trend following that you're sort of talking about that 200 day using it as a hedge against a big drawdown and then comparing that to something like crisis offer, which is someone who's long vol in the futures or the options and they're going to give you on the big drawdown, it's going to give you the big payoff and you're sort of hoping that they roughly they achieve the same thing. The two things to watch out for, if you're exposed to that, the crisis offer particularly, if you have that big drawdown, as Wes points out, these things, mostly they just break even over long periods of time. Well, that's a good, that's a great manager who gets you to break even over time. The advantage of it, the reason that you do it is that you have that monster drawdown. All of a sudden, your third pocket appears and it's got a whole lot of money in it. But then to take advantage of it, you have to be able to get access to that capital and redeploy it long and rebalance your book back to that starting setting. And if you can't get there, then it hasn't performed its function. It's sort of just, it's popped up when the market was down and you felt good, but you didn't achieve anything. It didn't get you any further ahead. The thing with the the trend following, the longer term sort of risk managed stuff, you have to understand what the thing is and you have some implementation risk in that as well, in the sense that when the, like a March 2020, I don't know which ones worked and which ones didn't, but there will be trend following funds that if they're very long term and they're checking in once a month, are we on or off for this month? And there's nothing wrong with that. If you, if you do it more frequently than that, you might find that you... The challenge is always how much of the, your cost over time, how much of your burning on premium or how much you're burning getting whipsawed versus your payoff. And you have to kind of decide, you may be able to do a 5% allocation, but you got to recognize that that 5% allocation, so you give it to someone like Mark Spitznagel, Mark Spitznagel is probably going to burn your 5% allocation over, you know, over a month or so, and you might have to re-up again for the next month or two with another 5% allocation because that's what those things do. They've got this extreme positioning that the premium bleeds off really quickly. And so I think it's more quickly. like 2 to 3% per year. I've tried to do it. Long vol options on futures balanced against a value book, that's a terrible idea because you can have this period of time where both sides of your book are underperforming. And if you don't get the big payoff, then you're just burning premium for a decade and you end up with that. You've achieved the same outcome where you're down 50%, but you haven't had the big, the big drawdown. I'm sort of with Wes in the sense that there are no, no free lunches. You just have to kind of get comfortable with your own personality and the function and implementation of the tools that you're using and recognize what they do and know that there's always a risk that you get you do all this risk management for a decade and you get to the same point that you would have been being down 50% or you know underperforming by 50%. All of that said, that's kind of why I've gone back to just trying to simplify my life as much as I can. Do we have time for a, a quick story of one of the best third pockets I've ever heard? It naturally comes from the GOAT, Mr. Buffett. It's the depths of 2008 drawdown and everybody's losing their minds, right? The world's coming to end. Warren sells puts. $5 billion worth of puts. He gets the money that second that he can go do whatever he wants with. And those puts, the way they're structured, no collateral required, no European style option. And the average duration is 13 and a half years from 2008. So even if the S&P was down, I think 40% from there, right? And this is all nominal as well, right? So like, 3% inflation alone, and even retained earnings is going to carry you well above probably wherever it is flat for that 10 or 15 year period. He gets like the cost of capital at that point for him would have been about 4%. And that's in the, if the S&P was at 40% below in 13 years from 2008. I mean, just one of the absolute all-time amazing third pocket plays that I've ever heard. And he didn't have to pay for it beforehand. Nope. Money in the door that day. While prices, you know, were at the best that at least I've probably seen in, in my lifetime. One thing I wanted to add here real quick is Toby brought up a genius point that most people forget is if you're going to do diversification, you're going to do crisis alpha, you're going to allocate these long haul things, you have to rebalance into the, the world of, that you own that blew up. 
I've noticed this time and time again. People are like, oh, I just owe them 60% of this, 40% of that, buy and hold. No, it doesn't work like that. Like you need to, the whole point is you got to be able to actively rebalance and take advantage of your third pocket or your cash. And if you're not willing to do that, it's, it's an even worse idea. Like I'm sure Jake here, you know, he's got his cash, but he's got a plan and a program and a system that when the world blows up, he's ready to use it. What most people do is they have their crisis alpha, they have their cash, world blows up. I, I just need to hold that cash. So unless you have a, a plan to actually take action to implement on the whole point of owning crisis alpha, it's also a waste of your time, which is something that Toby brought up, which is hugely insightful and important for, to reiterate here. It's not buy and hold. You have to actually do stuff when the world's on fire. Otherwise, it's just going Vanguard funds. Have a nice life. Yeah, Wes is totally right. I mean, having there's this idea of like a Ulysses contract. And if you remember, Ulysses was uh, this explorer and, and he was sailing. This is mythology, so it's not a real person. But, and he was sailed past the sirens and they wanted, you know, of course, their singing would draw the, the, the captain of the ship to steer into the rocks and crash, right? And that's how all the sailors died. So what Ulysses did was he tied himself to the mast so that he could still hear the sirens, but he couldn't turn the ship. So you need to probably create some Ulysses contracts with yourself about if something gets down to this price, I'm going to buy it. I even prefer to do it for myself with like valuations. Like I like this company. If I ever see it at 8x, whatever multiple, I'm going to buy it, right? And I keep track of that. And I think that's really like make these plans while you're sober, while there's not headlines filling your mental space, while it's, it's quiet and easy to think about it. And don't wait until you're in the heat of the battle. I'm sure Wes, you know, that saying about like, the more I sweat in peace, the less I bleed in war, right? Like, and I think I'm trying to sweat right now while it's peaceful so that I don't have to worry as much about it. And I just stick to the plan. I know it's a good plan because I, I put it together while I was sober, <laughs> right? Don't wait until you're in the middle to like come up with, okay, what do we do now? Guys, I think this is a good segue here into the next topic about active and, and passive investing, emotions, all the things that comes with that. So it seems like these days that there are more active retail trading that, that ever. Let me just yeah, by, start by giving you some stats here. So in 2019, uh, we had 59 million Americans who had accounts with one of the seven largest brokers, and that number has since surged. We are at around 96 million and 20 million of them were just opened uh, here in 2021. And so if you look at the total trading flow, retail is an all-time high with 40%. So still with all of that being said, we still see uh, passive investing on the rise. If you look at the S&P 500, 18.5% of that is held in passive ETFs and mutual fund indexes. So we've seen what looked to be uh, a, a secular trend for decades. And so even despite this surge in, in retail trading, we've seen more money be invested passively. So is that an advantage or a disadvantage? Let me throw it to you, Jake. If you have a latching, an increasing share of the, of the funds being invested passively, and I ask you because you, you pay individual stocks. So, I mean, a couple things. I think I'm very ambivalent about the, the rise of all the kind of like call it Robin Hood effect for, for lack of a better term. On the one hand, I love the idea that young people are investing, you know, taking an interest in owning businesses or, and like saving money and putting it to use. And I think it's terrific. I want to encourage that. However, I can't help but feel like a lot of it is resembles gambling, maybe by design, uh, as far as some of the dopamine hacking that, is, that happens. And I find that to be very dis distasteful. So while I like, I like the idea of the encouraging people to invest, the execution of it thus far in a lot of these apps has been, I find it to be disappointing. So as far as once the money comes in from outside and maybe like less sophisticated is passive or active, I think for most people, unless you have a real active interest in wanting to under like get into this stuff and, and kind of live it, I think passive is a totally appropriate thing for you to do. Now, if you are into it, then I think like it's active is, is still very reasonable. And granted, I like this is a motivated reasoning for sure, because it's like what I like to do. But there's like sort of two sides of the debate. Like there's the flow debate, which is like, God, if everyone's going into passive, those they're just buying all of the S and P 500. Let's say, therefore, that's the only thing that's going to like ever work and move. And if you're out of an orphaned stock that's not in an index that's getting passive flows, well, good luck to you ever being able to like 
recognize a uh, good return. I think that that is, um, is true in the short run, but a total advantage in the long run. Uh, and a, you have to have the faith that like what I'm buying today, even though it is an orphan and not part of indexes, the underlying business value is accruing. And the fact that no one is looking at it because they're just all passively indexing is an absolute godsend for an active investor. So I think that both sides of the debate right now have, have framed it as if, you know, call it kind of Mike Green's melt up theory of that it's just, we're just going to keep going up and it's because there's just passive flows all the time. Yeah, I think over a short time period, that's absolutely true. But over the long period, uh, you couldn't ask for a better setup as a stock picker because if, if no one's looking at all of these businesses and no one's bidding them up, like that's my dream come true. So I think it's just, again, it's always about coming back to setting like what is appropriate for your psychology, what game are you playing, and then picking the strategy that fits with what you're trying to accomplish and where your strengths and weaknesses are. The two questions is passive in the sense that you're just investing into an index fund and you've, you've, you've thought about your allocation beforehand and you're getting some exposure to all of the right things. You've got your asset mix. That's going to be perfectly fine. You've already recognized that there are risks in S&P 500 has a risk of going down 50% at any time. International stuff's in the same basket. The bonds might underperform if we get some inflation or interest rates go up. There's no, just to keep on saying Wes's favorite line, but 100% endorse it. There's no free lunch. You're going to be, there's no way to like protect yourself against everything or outperform everything. The other argument about passive distorting the market or destroying the market. I'm kind of with Jake on this, and I've been saying this for a while. You know, this scenario is not new. You can find there's a Piper Jaffray article from like 1999 called The Endangered Species List, and they followed up a year later with another one called Darwin's Darlings. Basically, they were just pointing out, hey, look, with all this tech stuff going on, there are all of these Russell 2000 companies. So that's the smallest 2000 of the Russell 3000. And they're, they're, some of the ones at the bottom are pretty small. Look, there are companies that are growing their earnings or revenues like 30% a year, and you can buy them on an EV multiple of like five. And this is crazy. And I, they were just pointing out the fact that this existed. And then from that, there was that activism and private equity boom in the early 2000s, where they all got taken private or they got approached by activists to have them do some sort of value enhancing maneuver. And then all of the action started happening in those smaller companies. And so, you know, for a period of time, everybody in the market was a, was a value guy and an activist. And that did then value did extremely well. And it attracted a whole lot of guys, probably like me and probably like Jay too. I don't want to hang you mate, on that one. But I, we talked about it at the time where I was like, oh, value's really, value works all the time and it does really well. What you've got to do is stomach those, uh, the, the tech boom, like late 1990s, and they never come around very often. And here we are in another in another gigantic tech boom with people trying to justify why it's going to go on forever. I kind of think that you know, when there's opportunities out there, you just got to take them even if, even if the market doesn't recognize it for a long period of time afterwards. So it's, I think it's a, it's a good thing from a, from a selfish perspective, whether it's good for the market as a whole, I don't know. That's a slightly different question to the Robin Hood question, isn't it? I don't know if we... Did we get off topic there? <laughs> no. Let me throw it over to you here, Wes, because we do have a Robin Hood question here next one to go. But before we do that, I know you're really in the, in the trenches with your funds. So I'm sure you thought about this question. It's something that I've... Is it an advantage or disadvantage to the active investor that we now see this, this secular trend? It looks like it's, it's going to continue. Yeah. I mean, I think in the end, investing boils down to dollars and cents, not whether it's labeled passive or active. So the things that matter always matter. Fees, taxes, and frictional costs. And so even though the best active strategy might be able to crush the soul of like the worst passive strategy, if the fees, taxes, or frictional costs aren't managed, you still might be better off doing passive, right? So, so that's something we always want to be concerned about on, on any investment approach. What are we doing and what's like the net benefit to it? But I, I certainly agree with, with these folks here. And it's something that you know, Ben Graham talked about like you know, 70 years ago. You know, in the end, it's a weighing machine. Like the facts matter. It's not a Ponzi scheme. At some point, cash flow and actual business matters. Now that it when is that point, Wes? When is that? The case that <laughs> I'm waiting. The market is crazy for another twenty years, but at some point, the weighing machine matters. And so that's something to consider when, whether you're active or passive. It's not whether it's active or passive. It's what are you buying. And fundamentally, right now, what you're buying when you buy passive is a bunch of extraordinarily expensive, high gross prospect, high sentiment 
it's got to be perfect to work investments. If you're cool with that and go for it. If you have horizon, you have discipline, you believe in the weighing machine, and you can access the exposure, cheap, efficient, after tax, blah, blah, blah. You know, I personally think that, you know, we're in a situation where the opportunity in active is actually enormous, but the cost of exploiting it is enormous in the form of behavioral problems. Because it, there's very likely that, you know, anyone who tries to, you know, do something cute is going to have to sit for 20 years when your five-year-old cousin is like, why don't you just buy NFTs, dude? So, I mean, that's the trade-off. Like to Toby's point, there's no free lunch. I think it's all an age-old debate that, you know, people have forever. The weighing machine matters in the end after taxes and frictional costs. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. So, Jens, I've, I really look forward to, to ask this question. So, Charlie Munger has said of the commission-free trading app, Robinhood. Yes, it is one of those episodes where we're talking about Robinhood. And so, he has said, it's a gambling parlor masquerading as a respectable business. So, let me just tee up to you. Like, Charlie, tell us how you really feel, right? Jake, do you agree with, with Charlie? And is there a silver lining? I tend to directionally probably agree with Charlie. The silver lining, I think, is it's it's like like Wes just said, like lowering the fees on any product like that is should hopefully leave more meat on the bone for the investor. Now, whether the the hidden fees of front running or whatever it is that how by selling order flow, what that actually takes a bite out of the the meat that's there for the investor. I'm not sure I even know what the answer to that is. And I, I don't know how much that skim costs. But And it does feel a little disingenuous to say that it's commission-free trades, which, okay, that is true, but it's not free trades. Like Those are two different things. So don't say free trades. That's not true. It's commission-free trade. So, But yeah, I mean, like I said already, like it's, it's certainly... Uh, and this is my own bias speaking of how I see the world and how I, I want to do this. But it does encourage a short-term kind of behavior, I think, probably too active of a of a trading relative to probably what the research would suggest is a good cadence. 
Yeah, it's a modern day version of the bucket shops that were around in Jesse Livermore's day, where you basically you can get access to margin and you know they've simplified it. So, are you th- do you think this is going to go up? Then buy this thing, which is an option, which you know up over yeah up over what period? A week, a month, a year, ten years? Like there are some businesses that I feel reasonably confident will be bigger businesses in five years' time. You know whether that stock price is going to be higher at the end of the quarter or not. Like I. I Flip a coin. I've got no idea, and I don't think that there are very many other people who have figured it out either. Maybe Jim Simons figured it out, but I don't think there are very many other people who figured out that short-term stuff. Yeah, I don't really like the uh, the way that they've set it up to encourage people to overtrade because I think that it's people who are in sort of a lot of them are in desperate straits and they're looking for some way out and they're using that as their way out. And I think that ultimately they'll probably get hurt. And then the silver lining might have been well, it's drawn all these people into the market who wouldn't otherwise be in there. But if they get burnt really badly, you know, are they going to come back or are they just gone forever? Ultimately, you're better off viewing it as like a savings vehicle that you save into over time and you get growth in the underlying assets over decades, not sort of weeks or months or quarters or even years. So I don't want to, you know, rain on anybody's parade. If if you're having fun doing it, then then have fun doing it. But just recognize that there, there is also a downside and we haven't seen one you know, since March 2020 when a lot of these people have come in post that. So Wes, you don't come off as the stereotype of the person sitting on your phone all day trading 14 days uh, options on, on Robinhood. I see you not there with the, with the criticism of, of Toby and Jake. Is there anything positive to say about this development we're seeing right now? So I usually explain to people like, hey, investing is 99% behavioral, 1% operational. And on that 1% operational, this stuff is amazing, right? If you're an investor, your fees, your taxes, and your fictional costs are insanely low via you know, these brokers, ETFs, what have you. However, you have a huge benefit on the 1% of investing, but on the other 99%, the behavioral side the costs have been magnified, right? You can now trade for free. You can trade seamlessly. Anyone can access the information, which just encourages decision-making and activity. And so I think on net, it's probably going to be the most painful, atrocious, money-losing exercise that you know a lot of people will ever go through for the rest of their life. Unfortunately, but it, like the toast point, it'd be a good lesson. I used to do that. I used to gamble all the time, and now I learn not to do that. So everyone's got to like touch the flame sometime, and I encourage people to do that when they're young and kind of broke. Because if you get some resources, you, you don't want to start doing that because uh, then you lose the whole kitty. So you know, there's costs and benefits to everything. I think one of the reasons that that real estate has been a, traditionally a pretty good wealth building vehicle for a lot of people is that because the transaction costs are so high and it's hard to get in and out of. And you know, I think for the the average person who they can make their mortgage payment and it turns into sort of a forced savings vehicle then. Like they basically, you know, borrow three hundred thousand dollars and then pay it back over time and you get three hundred thousand dollars at the end. So this is very much the opposite of that. I mean, like you said, if you're if you're diligent and I view that I'm building my my little empire every single day. And like the fact that I can create and pare down my empire and whatever the image is in my head of what it should look like for almost zero cost anytime I want to do it is an absolute amazing thing for an investor. But like any tool, it can be used for good or for not evil, but not for your benefit. And so you just have to be very careful. Just like a you wouldn't give a scalpel to a two-year-old because like Sure, like we do surgeries with scalpels, but you could also disfigure something. And I think that these these tools now are are very powerful in in a similar way and can be horrific if used correctly, but also dangerous if if abused. Well said, Jake. So for the last question here of the of this round, I wanted to to throw it over to to Toby and Wesley. Perhaps starting with you, Toby, because often on the show we talk about individual stock picks. We don't talk a lot about ETF investing. So I wanted to ask you now that we have both of you here. What's the best and the worst thing that has happened for retail ETF investors in recent years? The change from, this is sort of a technical thing, but the passive ETFs had a capital gains tax advantage over active ETFs that got removed in the last year. So an active ETF can now be run with the capital gains tax exemption, which it's the main reason that you run an ETF or one of the main reasons, like it has this liquidity, which is fantastic. 
for investors that they can get in and out multiple times through the day if they want to. And then the trades of the manager don't create capital gains tax implications for the person holding them. They make their own decisions about when they incur those capital gains tax. So I think that stuff is fantastic. It makes them, I think they're the best vehicles. I think that makes them better than mutual funds. They're better than LPs. They're better than managed accounts. That from that perspective, they're, they're great. And I think that there's the active change will see a lot more managers who had been in mutual funds or even managers who've been in LPs. And I know a few who are doing it, who are transitioning across into ETF structure, which means that anybody would be able to get access to them where previously you needed to have some sort of like asset level to be in an LP that was going to charge you a carry, which a lot of these guys want to do. You need to be a, an accredited investor, which is a, they've just changed the, the threshold recently, but it's, it's like millions of dollars in investable assets, which most people don't have. But you'll be able to get access to managers through ETS like Kathy Wood, you know, great manager. She's run it, run that portfolio really well, run it up and there's $50 billion worth of money invested with her. So all, a lot of people have participated alongside her. I think that there are lots of value guys who are probably starting ETFs now that I think that there's one of them will have a, or a few of them will have a really good run over the next few decades and the average investor will be able to participate alongside them. So I think that that even though that's a technical change, the practical implications of that are, are huge for the average investor. As for the worst thing, it might be that there's all of this new competition coming in in, uh, in value ETFs from these new managers who are some of whom are going to do really well. And I like it as more of an exclusive club, selfishly, but I'm joking. But I think it's a great vehicle. And so I think it's, it's all good. I literally do three or four calls a day with people that want to launch ETFs now because we're a manufacturing business where we help people get the market. And there is, to Toby's point, there are some amazing talents coming to market where normal in the old days that have been a hedge fund, tax inefficient, high fees. And now you're going to be able to access you know, these great talents at low fees, global access, tax efficiently. Right. So it's amazing. ETF's great for investors, but to our prior conversation, what is so terrible about ETF? Well, it's the same thing that's terrible about access is now you can trade it every day. You can move in and out of it every day. Like it's, that's the issue. It's a behavioral problem. So even though the investment opportunities and the cost to access them have came dramatically down, it doesn't matter because people are going to screw it up by day trading the value managers now. I start to feel like uh, Jack Bogle here. People screw things up because they're people. Even you could you know, bring the horse to water, they don't drink it. They just avoid your advice and go eat cyanide, I guess. Maybe you guys could cite the CGM's mutual funds results from 2000 to 2010 as, a, as an indicator of how, how bad that behavioral friction is. Ken Hebner's fund. That's Ken Hebner, yeah. Yeah. That's in quantitative values, and it? it was like the fund outperformed yeah. by. That's why I'm teeing it up for you guys here. The, the fund was 18% a year, and the average, the individual investor, and in it was 11% a year negative because the fund had that. The fund was volatile and had this gigantic run up at the end, and so most people just traded it the wrong way. When it was up, they sold it. When it was sorry, the other way around. When it was up, they bought it. When it was down, they sold it. Turned an 18% yeah. compound into 11% negative. Ben Johnson, I, I think he's the one at Morningstar has a cool study where they look at like over a 10-year period, like the best performing funds. And then they look at how like the Morningstar rankings and all that, that stuff go. And literally like the top performing funds, that usually it's the case that only two out of three years, they outperform the market. So they usually in a 10-year window, they have seven years of like egg on their face. But that, that's just, the, that's how it normally works. Like in order to outperform, you have to do crazy weird stuff and have horizons. But and so there's just a trade off. If you want to win and be the best over the long haul, you got to do weird stuff and it's got to be unique and you got to be ready for, like the stats say, seven out of 10 years. And that's not fun for a lot of people. It's just a fact of the marketplace. All right, Jen. So this has been a great conversation as, as always. Uh, we never have a chance to, to hang out with you. Before I let you go, I'd like to give all of you an opportunity to uh, let the audience know where they can learn more about you. Wes? AlphaArchitect.com. And if you want to launch an ETF, ETFArchitect.com. Pretty simple. All right. Jake? My investment shop is Farnham-Street.com. Got a book, Rebel Allocator, on Amazon. 
kind of fun podcast with Toby every week, our value after hours. And that's, yeah, just say hi on, on uh, Twitter, Farnham Jake one and uh, not too hard to find. Well, I should probably try to be harder to find. <laughs> JT undersells his book. He got Charlie Munger read Jake's book and liked it so much he gave him a call. He called him up and had a chat to him and he's, he's trying to help him make it into a movie. So if you haven't read that book, you should go and read that. It's a good book. And you should uh, come to uh, acquireismultiple.com, which is my, my website uh, where the podcast that I do with Jake is hosted. You can hear him, hear the man who spoke to Charlie Munger and hear what he has to say. I run two funds. One is called the Acquirers Fund, ZIG, that's mid-cap and large-cap US equities, US value, deep value style, and uh, deep, which is small and micro, same strategy, just in a, in a, different, in a different universe with a little, bit, a little bit more diversification. And I have, I'm on Twitter at Greenbacked, G-R-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. I think that's it. Fantastic. All right. As always, make sure to follow us. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to subscribe. And Jens, I guess I'll see you next quarter. Sounds good. Thanks, Dick. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.